welcome to another episode of Interactive Control, the place to get all your burning power controls questions answered. I'm your host, Michelle Rosinski. First, I'd like to give a quick reminder that Nexus Controls has been acquired by GE Vernova. This means that we'll be able to provide our customers with even better solutions as a single full-service controls business line. Today, we'll be discussing load flexibility with my guest, Bob Bellis. Bob is a principal customer application engineer at GE Gas Power. He has over 23 years of experience with combined cycle power plant controls, digital product management, engineering management, and energy ISO and RTO. Prior to joining GE, Bob was an officer in the U.S. Navy, serving at the headquarters of the Naval Nuclear Propulsion Program. Bob received bachelor's and master's degrees in mechanical engineering from MIT and a Master of Engineering Administration from Virginia Tech. This episode is the third in a four-part series on advanced control. If you missed the previous episodes on startup agility and combustion versatility, I would encourage you to listen to those as well. In the conclusion of this series, we'll cover system reliability. Now let's listen in to learn on about load flexibility. Hi, Bob. Thanks for joining us for episode three of our four-part series on advanced turbine controls. Today, we're going to be talking about, no, not system reliability. We're going to be talking about load flexibility. And system reliability will come next week, so everybody can get excited about that. Um, so I, I won't go into your background again because we did cover that in the first episode of the series. So if anybody wants to check that out, they can check the show notes or go back and listen to the first episode. Um, but so we'll get right into it. And the first question I want to ask is what are some considerations around load flexibility and why would a turbine operator care about it? Sure, sure. Happy to answer that. So first, uh, thank you once again, Michelle, for having me on on here. Enjoy these discussions. So, uh, yeah, let's let's get right into it. So load flexibility. Uh, you know, why do we need that? This arguably can kind of tie back to some of the points we made in the, the first episode where we were talking about startup agility, and that's all kind of linked to uh, a grid that's transitioning. You know, we're seeing coal being retired and renewables, solar, wind, non-dispatchable sources of generation being added to the grid in, in leaps and bounds. You know, that's uh, if you look at queues of interconnection, uh, new, new new generation being added, the vast majority of it really is renewables. And uh, that presents some challenges because it's not dispatchable, as I said. So the you know, our area focuses on the more the, the thermal gas turbine based, you know, uh, combined cycle type power plants. And those are indeed dispatchable. And that's where the the load flexibility capability that they are have the potential to achieve is really what is arguably a, a foundation and an anchoring point that'll help a grid uh, move to the future where renewables make up a much, excuse me, a much larger source of generation on the grid. Um, so the, the, the kind of the fundamentals of it is we, we want our thermal power plants to have higher highs and lower lows all while staying in emissions compliance. That's kind of the the overarching um, constraint that we've got to always comply with is ensuring that we keep our emissions low. And by that, I mean NOx and CO emissions and, uh, you know, having power plants, thermal dispatchable power plants that can do that, again, as I kind of highlighted, enable 
you to put more renewables on the grid that don't have any emissions at all, which is a good thing. So, um, but you need the higher highs, the lower lows, and more agility to move rapidly between those points. That kind of, you know, tying back to the the on-off capability of what we talked about in the start agility session. You want power when you need it, and you want to get out of the way when you've got emissions-free, fuel-cost-free renewables generation that's available. The problem is that it's not dispatchable, and that's where really the, as I kind of highlighted, the the thermal plants really sit and and, and are finding their their niche going forward here. So, handling those changes, um, that's kind of the the big thing that we're focusing on. That's why an operator kind of needs to look at it. What's the role of a thermal power plant in the future? Instead of sending it base load, it's more going to be backstopping renewables. And uh, one of the challenges that's in that space that actually a lot of the grid operators, the ISOs and the grid authorities have uh, uh, recognized with highly renewables rich grids is that those renewables don't have inertia. Generally speaking, there isn't any spinning mass, no rotational you know, rotors spinning it synchronized to the grid that are um, providing rotational inertia that helps ensure the frequency of the grid stays stable where you want it to go. As you displace the high inertia sources of dispatchable generation with low inertia or zero inertia, you know, um, inverter-based generation, wind and solar, you end up with the likelihood, a much higher likelihood of grid frequency excursions. And so a lot of grid operators have imposed rules that say, hey, if you'd like to be connected to my grid, you need to be able to survive frequency transients. Because if you can survive the event uh, where the frequency goes high, goes low, as you lose load or gain, uh, you know, a, a, a source of generation goes offline or a, a load center uh, demand goes away, if you can survive that, then you can better able to respond and keep the grid running and not cause a cascading effect where you end up with a blackout of the system, you know, basically a whole shutdown of the grid as a result of um, a frequency excursion that you couldn't survive. So that's becoming a much, much bigger deal. And load flexibility all plays into that. And how you, the ability to move higher high or lower low as quick as you can is very important ensuring that the, you match the supply and demand of power on our, uh, on our grids out there across the world. Um, one other point in that space to, to kind of mention, and I, I kind of highlighted this before, is emissions is, of course, a key thing um, that uh, is you know, must do, really, from a regulatory compliance standpoint, just as, as I said before. Um, if a thermal power plant didn't need to worry about emissions compliance, arguably providing that load flexibility would be relatively easy. It's relatively straightforward to do, to do that. Thermal mm -hmm. power plants are generally quite flexible of by nature it's the doing that same flexibility while maintaining emissions compliance that presents the technical challenge that's uh that we we need to you know dig into further uh-huh yes when you say dispatchable you mean it can come on and offline relatively quickly versus solar or wind where we don't really have control over whether the sun is shining or the wind is blowing that's exactly right yep okay yep. And when you talk about inertia on something like a uh, gas turbine, that continues to spin at least somewhat, even at lower loads. So there's some inertia on the grid for that, but that's not the case with things like wind and solar. That's exactly right. Yeah, I mean, once the turbine is synchronized to the grid, so in, in North America at 60 hertz, 
that gas turbine rotor and, and the associated steam turbine is spinning at 3,600 RPM. And it will continue to do that at base load or at min load or at any load point in between. Well, as long as it's synchronized, you have that spinning mass providing inertia. So the VARs, the the, the other side of your, uh, uh, your double Ds out there, the, providing VAR support to the grid to ensure that you uh, maintain stability on the system. Gotcha. Okay. So then that makes sense. You know, I think we have a better understanding what load flexibility is, why it's important, especially to the, in today's landscape. It's becoming increasingly important with all of the renewables that are coming online. Yep. Um, and so we can see why a turbine operator would care about it. What can customers do about it? How can they uh, kind of react to this new landscape that we're living in? Yep, yep, yep. It's a great question. So I guess first, you know, I, I kind of, I think probably in the prior session sort of highlighted that, you know, a lot of the power plants that were built, call it in the early 2000s, when a lot of the deregulation of the power industry first occurred, they were built with a mission of base load, you know, that they were going to sit and run at base load all the time. Um, and so there wasn't a whole lot of thought put into expanding the, uh, or providing load flexibility, expanding the load range in which plants could operate. So that's what, you know, a lot of arguably a lot of the innovation here in the last several years has been how do I take advantage of what's already built, already installed on the ground and improve upon the, uh, the capability that it has. So first and foremost, it's it's the it's larger load range. And by that, I kind of hinted at it before, a higher high and a lower low. How high and load can you go while holding emissions compliance? How low and load can you go while in maintaining emissions compliance? And then in particular, how fast can you transition to any point along that spectrum of load range? But fundamentally, the, the larger the load range that you have available, the more uh, flexible you are, and you can accommodate a bigger swing in wind and solar power that's out there on a, a unit that's already synchronized and connected to the grid without having to resort to turning on yet another turbine that may be lower efficiency, uh, you know, older asset, uh, more costly to run type of thing. So the more flexible you can make your your main highly efficient units, the better off you can be overall. And, and kind of th the final point, and speaking of that efficiency point, a lot of those power plants were built with base load operation in mind. And so their design optimum for efficiency was, of course, at base load. While we can't get you base load efficiency at min load or at part load conditions. There are some things that can be done to improve that efficiency while running at that part load condition, that off design point um, to help in some way ease the pain and and you know, reflect the reality of that's where a lot of plants have to run today is at part load. Again, right, to provide that load flexibility to backstop the renewables that are out there. And is it true that it's actually that's one of the highest emissions times as if you're running at a low load? Well, it depends on how you measure emissions. From a straight tonnage standpoint, it, that's not where it's going to be the highest because you simply have you have lower mass flow going through the turbine. So the tonnage that you're generating in terms of NOx and CO is going to be lower, less okay. fuel being burned at lower loads, less uh uh, emissions being generated on a if you switch the metric to a emissions per megawatt then you could argue that yeah you're probably in some cases going to be less uh 
or, or you know, I guess more emissions intense at those at those lower loads. But you know, when I'm thinking of emissions, I'm thinking of you know parts per million. You know, how, how do I hold? Uh, in most places in North America, if you've got a you know, non-SCR plant, 9 ppm NOx is kind of what a lot of permits are out there. 9 ppm NOx and CO, we could hold those ppm levels across the the whole load range. Um, if you have an SCR, that might be two or three ppm. Um, out of the stack after the uh, the exhaust stream goes through that SCR system, but uh, yeah, so so that's kind of what we mean. The the emissions is is uh, it, it's lower, but um, you know from an, again efficiency standpoint or a CO2 generation, you know the carbon footprint type things, you're less efficient at lower loads, but you're definitely burning less fuel. I see that makes sense. Um, okay, so what they want to do is they want to be able to run at higher highs and lower lows while maintaining while maintaining emissions compliance and they want to be able to transition between those highs and lows and even run at part load yes. just kind of somewhere in the middle that they would want to be able to do as well absolutely yep okay and and part of that is trying to improve the efficiency while running at that part load. Exactly. Yep. Yep. Okay. Okay. So then that's that's what you know the goal is. And I so I guess then kind of our last question, but I think there's a lot to this, is what can GE Vernova do uh, to help customers achieve this goal? Yep. And that's you're right. There's, there's a lot of things you can do here. We can we can kind of <laughs> explore. I'll, I'll start from the start uh, from the standpoint of um, kind of the control software standpoint. There's a lot of things we can do with software only. And then you know the reality of it is to really expand load range. Um, you may need to look into hardware changes, investments to improve the capability of installed plants. You know, a lot of new turbines coming out of the factory is brand new power plants. Those those are built in with flexibility from day one. But as we hinted, a lot of the power plants built in the last, you say, 15, 20, 25 years uh, really weren't optimal uh, you know, designed with flexibility from the get-go. So there's a lot of things we can do from a, a retrofit or upgrade standpoint to improve the flexibility upon what's there. So what we can start with um, on the uh, software side of things and first looking at kind of the higher high. How do you get more megawatts on the top end of things? And so some of the more simpler ones are simply to uh, make a change to the, the inlet guide vane, the IGV, that is basically the throttle that governs how much air is running, coming into the front end of the compressor and therefore what's going in the combustion system. If there's room on select turbines, you might be able to move that to a larger, to a higher value and essentially allow more airflow in. So simply just getting more mass flow, you can put more fuel in, the combination of more fuel, more air gives you more output. So that's a relatively simple thing to do. And since you're keeping that fuel air ratio balanced, your emissions will generally speaking be uh, uh, maintained the way you want it to be. Uh, another one that's there is, um, we'll call it cold day performance, but this kind of goes a little bit to building off of what we talked about in the last session on combustion versatility, where uh, our, our dry low NOx combustion systems, which is what you need to hold and run at the really low emissions levels, those are on the hairy edge of stability just by the nature of how they run. So particularly when you get to colder weather, those turbines will struggle to, uh, or those combustors rather, will struggle to hold 
simultaneously low emissions, low dynamics, and a flame that's stable. Well, as we talked about in the last session, if I've got, um, you know, so the, well, if I've got auto tune on that unit, it, it, uh, it allows me to basically remove the conservatism that I had to build into the default controls, which, and by that conservatism, I mean, we used to under fire turbines in colder weather to give a little bit bigger operability window to ensure you kept that combustor in its, in its nice operable you know, sweet spot, if you will. With AutoTune, I now have an automated control methodology to keep that combustor in its happy place. And so the result of it is I can get rid of that conservatism and restore firing temperature up to a higher value in colder weather. And thereby doing, I gain output, more output in colder weather conditions while still holding my emissions where I want it to be. So that's that's another little software one that's linked on, you know, uh, what we talked about last time with with the you know, better control of the combustion system in general. Um, and I, I, it's fair for me to answer that, you know, that there are other, you know, uh, another very crude, simple way to get more output out of a turbine is to overfire it. Something called "quote unquote" peak fire, where we basically just, you know, uh, dump more fuel in uh, for the same airflow you got. You'll get a higher firing temperature in there. You'll get more output, but the trade-off there is is going to come with higher emissions. So, for limited points in time, like you know, a, a condition where we were talking about before, where the grid is unstable, frequency is not where it needs to be, the frequency is drooping. In those cases, you might be willing to trade off giving up on emissions to keep the uh, to be able to raise output and keep the grid stable and not have a blackout, you know, a cascading effect. So, so there's reasons, emergency conditions, if you will, where peak fire may make sense to go uh, go implement. Um, so, so those are kind of. Go ahead, Michelle. Yeah. So the products, if I'm understanding right, these are part of a suite that we have called Opflex. Uh, mm -hmm. Peak fire is a product that we offer that allows yes. the products to. Um, or that allows the uh, turbine to just fire at a higher temperature. Correct. Yep. Yep. But that's coming with higher emissions, so it's probably only something you're going to want to do temporarily in times when you're struggling with grid stability, things like that. And then exactly auto tune. Right, yep. Okay. And then auto tune was the other product that you mentioned. Well, I would say AutoTune is a prerequisite enabler for a product that we call cold day performance, which is another one of those Opflex okay. solutions that basically builds on or takes advantage of the fact that AutoTune is keeping that combustion system, uh, you know, in real time, it's keeping it operable, you know, in that in that sweet spot, and because of that, you can increase firing temperature and uh, it get more output that way. Notably gotcha. on cold conditions. Yep. Okay. And so that those were the products that you mentioned: the Peak Fire, the Auto Tune, and the Cold Day Performance. Correct. You got it. Okay. Great. And then um, I'll just to I guess be fair and round it out on the um, there are things you can do on the hardware side, which involve you know major outages and taking your turbine apart and putting new new hardware in. You, know, you can basically swap out the entire hot gas path with a more advanced design that has uh, more sophisticated uh, coatings that allow the machine to go to higher firing temperatures and use less cooling. That's another way to get more output out of your same turbine. Um, there are solutions that uh, involve inlet conditioning, you know, things where you can um, use uh, 
like a wet compression or an inlet chiller to make the increase the mass flow coming into the front of the compressor, either through adding some you know moisture, increase the humidity levels of the air going in, or just cooling the air off. Cooler air is generally more more dense. So those those technologies have been out there a long time. So just being fair that those are out there um, for providing a higher high on top of what the performance is today. So. Okay. I imagine they're a little bit more involved and expensive than yes. a software solution, Correct. but then Very much they're so, going to maybe have a, a better, bigger result as well. Yes. Yep. Yep. That's fair to say. Yeah. Gotcha. That makes sense. Okay. So that's higher highs and then lower lows. Is that, uh, Yep. Coming up next. That's the next one. Yeah, let's let's talk about that. So so here, you know, lower lows, this is a term that's the it's used in the industry most often is called turndown. You know, how low and low I can go while still holding emissions compliance. And a lot of that kind of goes back to again management of the combustion system, combustor operability. It's it was designed for that high load, base load condition. And and most combustors have different modes of operation. And that's kind of a uh, how many of the fuel nozzles inside each combustor are actually have a flame in them, are, are, are fired. And so, uh, you know, there's a certain range of load over which you have a combustor in a given mode with, say, all five or six fuel nozzles with flames. As you go to lower and load, you may turn off some of those nozzles and end up with uh, fewer being lit. And uh, there's a lot of tricks around in the combustion world to try to manage how do you get that combustor to operate at lower air flows, lower fuel flows, and still keep the really the combustion temperature at a high enough point where you, you'll you simultaneously get your, your NOx and your CO emissions in check where you want them to be. So um, early on, you know, there, there's, from a control standpoint, there are technologies that we can do to basically manipulate some of those combustor modes, change how much fuel flow is going to each circuit, and in that way, open up the envelope and allow the turbine to go to a lower load uh, while holding emissions compliance. The, the My example, I think, in my head is a, a typical GE7FA gas turbine, dot 03 turbine, I'll say, from, you know, built, say, 20 years ago. Out of the factory, we would say its emissions compliant load range is roughly 50% load to 100% load, so call it 85, 90 megawatts up to the, the nominal 172 back in the day in the original rating of those machines. With that more sophisticated combustion control, we can take that 50% load and knock it down into the 40% load range or so. So buy yourself about 10% more load range, holding emissions compliance, staying in that combustion mode that uh, keeps you simultaneously low NOx, low CO type of thing. Um, and that's what the the product there is called turndown. Again, it's part of the Opflex yep, suite. Yep, just extended turndown. Yeah, would be kind of the name. Mm-hmm. Extended turndown, and that can get you maybe ten percent um, more range. Yep. Yep. Okay. Yep. R- roughly speaking, I mean, depends on your turbine and you know specific model and such, but that's roughly speaking what, what you can get on it. Um, and, and a good complementary product that goes with it, because what we've seen is a lot of you know th- that that min load at which you can maintain emissions compliance, it will vary depending on ambient conditions. On a hot day, that's gonna be a different percent load and a different megawatt level than it is on a cold day, uh, just by the nature of uh, 
the way firing temperature swings a little bit with ambient temperatures and the airflow and such that's going on. So we've got another piece of software that's usually included standard with extended turndown called emissions compliant, excuse me, minimum emissions compliant mode or MECM. And the idea there is instead of having a an operator sit in front of a control uh, control room HMI screen and kind of manually manage keeping the turbine as low a load as you can while looking over the other screen at the emissions measurement to make sure you stay in compliance. This is software that basically automate that process. So it'll it'll keep a, if you will, a um, a certain dead band or a, or a margin off of the temperature at which you would transition out of emissions compliant operation and uh, adjust load if need be to ensure you stay in that correct combustion mode as ambient conditions change. So it's a nice thing to kind of remove conservatism and what you advertise or what you tell a grid operator is your minimum load and yet and, and kind of get yourself the most capability, the most, you know, like we like we said before, the largest load range available in a kind of an automated manner um, while holding emissions compliance. So that's another ni nice one on the lower low uh, uh, side of the load range. Okay, so we've got extended turndown and then we've got the minimum emissions compliant mode. And yep. that last one um, automatically makes sure that they are meeting the minimum emissions requirements throughout varying ambient conditions so that they can get like the largest range. Yep, that's exactly right. Yeah, it, it, it automates what otherwise would be kind of a manual process that uh, can be risky. You know, if you have an operator maybe that's uh, less experienced or not as paying close attention as they could be, you, you could end up with emissions violations. and That's generally not a good thing. <laughs> so yeah. this, this helps the operator do their job better, arguably. Okay. Okay. And then, um, so then the next one is transition, right? There's a couple products that help with that. Yes. Yeah, that's good. So transition here by that we mean is, is the, uh, you know, how quickly you can go from min load to max load and vice versa, you know, from top to bottom, bottom to top. And here it's simply, uh, well, I guess there's really two things to talk about here. One is just ramp rates inside of emissions compliance. And that's, uh, this is this is where really combustion turbines shine. They are inherently very flexible. It's like stepping on the gas pedal in your car. You can accelerate and change load rapidly. You can or change speed, I guess, in a car would be the example. And then you can step on the brakes and reduce speed real quickly. So gas turbines are kind of like that as well. So we can, uh, again, with the with the management of combustion control, we, we can feel comfortable doubling or even tripling the nominal ramp rate that a, a gas turbine can deliver while holding emissions compliance. And that's, for, for examples, that, that's taking a, uh, going back to that 7FA.03 example, out of the factory, you can do about 14 megawatts per minute. We're, we're comfortable doubling that, uh, if not even more. So it's 28 megawatts a minute, or we've even for sure tested as high as 42, you know, tripling that 42 megawatts a minute. And so what that means is, you know, if I go back to that load range, if I combine that with turndown, I, I can now have a load range of, say, 100 megawatts or so, and I can transition and cover that whole load range in about two and a half minutes. So that's incredibly fast way to deliver wow. 
you know, megawatts changing and it's, and it's two directions. You know, I can go up and down and, and that electric is I'm moving real quickly. I have to make sure I manage that combustion system properly to one, keep the flame stable and two, um, make sure that uh, I stay in emissions compliance while doing it. So that's very uh, beneficial from a flexibility standpoint. The reality is though, most of these combustion turbines are sitting in front of a, a bottoming cycle with a steam turbine. And so you have to be sort of careful on, from the combined cycle standpoint, as I swing load very quickly, you know, it's got 30, 40 megawatts a minute on the gas turbine. I'm massively changing the exhaust conditions that are going into the heat recovery steam generator, the HRSG, which then affects the production of steam in the, and that's gonna go into the steam turbine. So there is some transient stability issues that you have to be careful with on how the, uh, uh, how the HRSG system is uh, controlled you know, to better to ensure you regulate the steam temperature that you're producing um, to go into the steam turbine as you go through these very large transients. And so we've done some solutions here and uh, on basically a feed forward control type of setup where you you tell the uh, you, you give a feed forward signal to the HRSG a temperation system, which is kind of a, a spray flow system that'll blend a little bit of water with the steam that's being produced to regulate steam temperature exactly where you want it to be. If you give it a feed forward signal, hey, the gas turbine's gonna change load very quickly. The exhaust conditions are gonna do this, that, and the other thing. You can be smarter about, okay, well, start closing out a temperation splay valve or open it one way or the other to go regulate the steam temperature the way you want it. So that's a great way to get that kind of best of both worlds. You, know, you get the very fast following megawatts, which is what the gas turbine delivers. But yet you ensure the stability, you know, the steam turbine will catch up eventually four or five minutes later after you've boiled water, made steam to go run through the steam turbine to, uh, to supplement what the gas turbine's doing. But the bigger point of it is to ensure that you don't upset the control of the HRSG and the steam turbine. You regulate that steam temperature, steam flow and steam conditions as best you can while the gas turbine is going up and down. You know, very very quickly so so that's a good complementary product and there there michelle that one is called advanced temperator control um it's another one that's in that Optlex portfolio that that complements the the uh the fast ramp offering that we have on the gas turbine side of things the advanced temperator control is that um because you were talking about grid stability so is it that the product is called advanced temperator control but it helps with grid stability or is grid stability a separate product i, I would say grid stability is arguably a separate product it's it, it's really a um grid stability is maybe a, a almost a category of products unto itself because as i kind of highlighted back at the beginning um a lot of grid authorities out there are developing um regulations for how they ensure the reliability of their grid and how and, and just you know any kind of government type entity the the regulations and rules are going to vary and differ depending on where in the world you are and what their specific problems are like for example a grid that's um very small and has a high penetration renewables ireland is a very good example it's, it's an island grid with a ton of wind on it the requirements there for grid stability are very rigorous and so the software that we develop that's kind of customized and tailored towards grid stability requirements in Ireland are going to be a lot more uh, complicated, you know, more sophisticated, if you will, than what we might have on a, a much larger system that doesn't have high, as high renewable penetration as, you know, yet, you know, it may eventually in the future. So 
Um, so it is, yeah, it's kind of different. And that's why I was kind of trying to separate a little bit. The, the kind of normal dispatch and normal operation is where fast ramp and, uh, the temperation control kind of fit in. Um, I'm not in an emergency condition. I'm in normal operation and I'm just balancing load and demand by manipulating gas turbine load to accommodate changes in wind and solar. If I shift gears and think of the grid stability world, it's a little bit more of an emergency situation. I've got a, a frequency that's, you know, well, in, in Ireland, I'm not sitting at 50 hertz or 3000 RPM. I'm now seeing a, a change in, you know, if the wind stops blowing, um, then I've got a you know, higher demand than the supply of power, I'm going to see frequencies start dipping. And so what you want is a gas turbine, a dispatchable asset to, to accelerate, you know, to increase load very, very quickly. And in those kinds of circumstances, the grid authorities may even be willing to let you give up on emissions. Hey, if, if you know, and kind of going back to that peak fire comment, hey, if, if I need to increase load to ensure that I don't have a blackout, that I could try to restore grid frequency, I'm going to do it. I'm going to give up on emissions and make that happen. And so there's there's a, a lot of, uh, I'll call it, you know, special products, it, it customized software almost for each unique grid. There's some kind of general ones that are uh, in most parts of the world. One that's starting to become uh, more critical, or I guess fairly common out there is something called rate of change of frequency and that's it's it's a requirement that basically says hey uh for you to be compliant your turbine needs to survive a change in grid frequency of as much as two hertz in the span of one second that's a massive change so you're this 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 spinning rotor that's at 3000 rpm uh is going to need to survive a you know a loss of 50 or 100 rpm and on a gas turbine that's a particularly challenging thing to survive because uh, it being that it's a synchronous machine and the compressor is spinning at the grid speed, the 3000 RPM, if you change that grid speed from 3000 RPM to something lower, you've now massively changed the amount of airflow going into the combustion system. And so you can very quickly have a mismatch of airflow and fuel flow. And that can, as we've kind of highlighted in some of the other sessions, if you get a mismatch of fuel flow and airflow, you create a problem in combustion. You can get a blowout. Yeah, and if that, and if you blow out the combustor, you just trip that turbine offline, and you just exacerbated the grid problem. Instead of that mm. turbine survive, you know, providing support to restore frequency, you've actually lost it. It's tripped offline, and it caused a cascading effect of, of a blackout. So that's why a lot of these grid authorities are imposing some very very strict grid rules out there to say, hey, you got to be able to survive an event like this. Yes, give up on emissions, overfire the machine, do whatever you got to, but we got to keep the grid, we got to keep it synchronized. And you know, in the meantime, the grid authority is going to be doing other things to disconnect load so that the, uh, you know, the, both the, the load side of it is not as bad as, as with the supply as you can get those in balance as quick as you can before hopefully having a blackout take out the whole system because that's no one wants that. That's that's mm. just a, a no go. So yeah, so that's kind of what I mean by grid stability. And so there's a lot of depending on what country you're in, there's a lot of software solutions that are out there. They're aimed at complying with specific grid requirements, uh, grid re you know, regulations on different parts of the, different parts of the world. And so grid stability is something that gets installed per site. It's not something that sits up at the grid stability authority level. It gets installed per site 
at an individual site level, it then helps with the overall grid stability. Yeah, I guess the way I would say it is there's, it's probably an orchestration across you know everything. There are there are things that happen at the system level that the grid operator can do. Like they they can go, uh, you know, hey, ask a big consumer of power to disconnect or reduce their their demand or their their request for load. That'll help reduce you know get things back in balance. Um, and you know there's uh, you know the you have now with kind of like microgrids and a lot of uh, things. Um, uh, what's, what's the word I'm thinking of? Uh, kind of a you know, two-way power flow where you can have uh, uh, you know, a prosumer, I think is the, is the right word. Yeah. They can produce and consume power at the same time um, with more equipment connected to the grid. There's ways to try to do that balancing. But that's you know, those are large macro things. When the rubber meets the road from a dispatchable thermal power plant standpoint, yeah, it's it's control software sitting in and running that turbine where you've got a lot of fairly sophisticated software to go do that, keep that combustion system happy. There's some software that goes with the excitation system to kind of help manage that side of things as well. But it's it's a, an orchestration at the system level as well as at the individual turbine level on the system, where you know what node in the system it is, if you will. But it doesn't get it. It doesn't have to get in, installed at a system level, right? It gets installed at a site level, but then it's taking Correct. system characteristics into account in operating that particular site. Yes. Yeah. This is okay. software. Yeah. 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 Generally speaking, yeah. The, the software. Well, the, there is software that it can be sold to improve uh, at the system level. You know, given high renewables penetration. But what we're talking here relative to combustion turbines is software that's at the unit specific level running in the the mark 6e control system that's on that turbine to you know at the i mean at the point source you know that, that's right at ground zero of ensuring that that turbine stays connected to the grid and continues to deliver power even if frequency is not where it's supposed to be either high or low you know either direction it's it's a it's a big deal to keep those assets online and uh helping the helping the grid survive event you don't want to make it worse that's the big thing right yeah you need you need stuff local is maybe the point yep okay okay so the products that you mentioned for transition just to make sure i've got this right Mm -hmm. is fast ramp is that what that one is called advanced attemperator control and grid stability yep yep and uh, like i said grid stability is is really a a suite of software solutions Mm. that you can kind of uh you know, depending on your turbine model and where in the world you are, we can pick and choose from a library, a whole portfolio of grid software solutions to go plug into your turbine to help you comply with and demonstrate via testing, if needed, that you meet the requirements of that that grid operator. Okay, so like Opflex is a suite of solutions. There's Correct. another suite of solutions called Grid Stability. It's kind of like a yeah. I mean, I think we labeled it we, you know, like the Grid Services Package. I guess is about, I would call it, it's like a sub okay. suite of solutions that's inside the overall Opflex portfolio, but specifically aimed at the um, what what do you do when the frequency is not where it's supposed to be? That kind gotcha. of thing. Okay. Okay, and then um, I think you also mentioned, at least to me, about efficiency, and there is a product that can be used to help with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's jump into that. So we we talked about before how most of these turbines were built with their optimal efficiency at base load. That was the design point because that's that's, that was the mission that they were going to run at. 
Um, and the reality is that a lot of those turbines are going to be needing to run at part load. And so I put our heads together. Is there anything we can do to try to help improve efficiency at part load? Um, and there, there are some things we can do with um, manipulating kind of the, uh, well, I guess there's things you can do to kind of manipulate the load path that the turbine runs at when it's at part load conditions. But the the, the easier one, or I guess the, the one that I want to focus on here really is the, a lot of turbines um, will have a system called inlet bleed heat. And, and the idea of that is it's a, on, on the compressor, there's an extraction that comes off of, uh, that takes you know some compressed air from the later stages of the compressor and feeds that back into the inlet of the compressor. Um, and the idea there is it helps heat the inlet air, which is a good thing to prevent icing conditions from happening at the front end of the compressor. It's also kind of a safety thing to help the compressor be protected from surge events where you get a, you know, a, a pressure wave kind of going the wrong direction. Your, your uh, pressure likes to go from high to low, and uh, so that would have your airflow going backwards in the compressor, which we don't want to do. So if you get bleed heat, it can allow you to kind of re relax some of those conditions that might happen. And then inlet bleed heat also can help with uh, managing combustion turndown, as we talked about it, because you're if you take air off the compressor, that means there's less air going into the combustion system and you can keep its temperature uh, higher, which is what you need for managing CO emissions in particular. So that inlet lead heat system that's on most of these turbines is, uh, um, it's a good guy from that standpoint in that it helps with a lot of the operability concerns that you have with the turbine. But inherently, it's a bad guy from the standpoint that I'm, I've just all, done all this work to compress air and then I'm just going to dump it back into the inlet. I'm going to, so I'm, I'm losing efficiency by compressing air and not using it to do legitimate work in the turbine section itself. So, you know, but if you don't run it part load very often, which is where this inlet bleed heat system is usually on, no one ever cared. It was just a transit to try to get there. As we talked about, the reality is a lot of these turbines are spending a lot of time running at part load conditions. So, hey, you know, well, what is the, how is that inlet bleed heat system scheduled or, or controlled? What, what, what's the schedule that determines how much inlet bleed heat you use and how much conservatism is in that schedule? Maybe there's a way we can trim down and re reduce the amount of inlet bleed heat that we pull off the compressor. And, you know, the more we reduce that flow, the better we improve efficiency at, at those part load conditions where, inlet bleed heat system is turned on. And so that's effectively what we've done. We've, we've essentially said, hey, if my most limiting thing, generally speaking, is going to be icing, that, that risk of icing conditions of, and that's where you get, you know, the front of the compressor, you're creating somewhat of a vacuum. So if you got sort of humid air coming in the front of that compressor, you can uh, create a local environment where ice will fill you know water will kind of come out of a uh, solution in the inlet and will play will uh, build up ice on the inlet air veins and that's not a good thing because if that ice breaks off it can go through the compressor and wreck it well the old approach to control there was to use a very conservative schedule i'm going to make sure that if my igv my load level is at 50% load, you know, the equivalent of wherever that correlates for the inlet guide vane angle. I'm going to make sure that the inlet bleed heat system is on at a certain percent of compressor flow, four, five, six percent of compressor flow, something like that. Well, that's great. And I need that when I'm at, call it a 35, 40 degree Fahrenheit day with high humidity. I'm really close to an icing risk. 
but I don't need that same icing protection on a 95 degree summer day. So why do I penalize myself and use the same fixed control schedule for inlet bleed heat on a hot day as I do on a cold day? And so that's fundamentally what we do with variable inlet bleed heat as another solution is to say, well, I'm going to let, let's go embed a essentially an icing model inside the controller to understand how close I am to an icing condition. And in so doing, dial back, only use as much bleed heat as is needed for when I'm close to an icing condition. And so the benefit there is on, on warmer weather, I'm going to see a significant improvement of part load efficiency. I'm dialing back how much inlet bleed heat I use. And uh, you know, that's like in the order of one to one and a half percent gas turbine efficiency. Um, that's this very significant improvement at uh, a part load condition. So so that's kind of a neat neat product that that helps go after you know just inherently the way we control turbines, but let's let's just be smarter about using advanced controls and replace a static schedule with something that's actually a model actively controlling what we're doing to deliver a benefit, deliver a, a part load efficiency benefit. Long-winded mm. expl explanation, Michelle, but I, I think it, <laughs> it, it, it's worth to kind of highlight how we get there. Yeah, no, so if I understand, inlet bleed heat is, is something that is used for protecting against anti-icing and it's, it's helpful in turndown, but mm -hmm. The concept of the inlet bleed heat is in itself inefficient because it's taking this, you know, air that we've just uh, compressed and heated up and it's, you know, dumping it. So then Correct. it's not being used and we're going to have to compress and heat up more air. Um, so having the variable inlet bleed heat allows us to stop being so conservative in how much of that inlet bleed heat we're just dumping out and make sure that we're we're being uh, kind of smarter and, and more efficient with how much of that we really need. Yeah, yep, it's, it's exactly right. It's it's uh, uh, replacing a dumb, static, simplistic, conservative, one-size-fits-all control curve with a, a tailored, customized, unit-specific onboard model that's measuring and dialing in exactly what's the minimum I need to provide the, the, you know, deliver what that IBH system was uh, in, intended to be used for. So, so yeah, it's just a smarter approach to control leverage by having a, you know, a, a, a good control system in there that can do those calculations in real time because it's it's a real time adjustment. Right, and the product is called variable IBH. Yep, that's exactly it. Yep. Okay, I think that covers most you know, the topic, did, did we miss anything that you wanted to make sure that we touched on? I I think at a high level, I think we've covered pretty much everything. Um, I guess the only part is just like to, to mention, we, we kind of talked higher high on the hardware side. Uh, on the lower low uh, on the hardware side there, there are solutions that we've developed. Again, it, it's all about, uh, you, know, you know, again, you got to do surgery on the turbine and kind of take it apart. But there's there's a system you know, from a, you know, I kind of mentioned in the 7F world, 40% load is kind of entitlement for what you can do on a software basis. If you change to a more modern combustion system, uh, it's going from the DLN 2.6 to the DLN 2.6 plus, that might get you the end of the 30s. But of late, one of the more advanced systems we've got is something called axial fuel staging. 
and that essentially adds a fifth fuel circuit to the combustion system. So it's it's not a software only thing. It's a significant changes to the physical arrangement of the turbine. But just to give a flavor for what entitlement is, we've got real turbines out there running and holding emissions compliance down to as low as 25, 26% gas turbine load. So that 175, 180 uh, megawatt turbine, you know, you're 45 megawatts or lower in emissions compliance and have the full dispatchable load range ahead of you. So there's a lot, you know, and that's eye-opening kind of flexibility. And and quite honestly, when you get the gas turbine down to those lower loads, now it's you're, you're getting to the point where the bottoming cycle starts to become a little bit more constrained. It 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 doesn't like running at really low steam flows and and uh, you know either. And so you, you, it's just kind of a, a amazing change that we've gotten to the point where it was always the gas turbine limited the min load that you could run at, and now we've we've with axial fuel staging kind of gotten to the point where uh, that's no longer the case. The gas turbine is not what's limiting. It's it's the bottoming cycle that, uh, that dictates what you can do. So um, a lot of sophistication there. You know, that's built upon using auto-tune is to, to manage the combustion operability. But again, you know, a, a full 75% of your load range available for dispatch, you know, is a massive improvement compared to uh the way we were back, you know, 15, 20 years ago when these turbines first came out of the factory. Yeah, it sure is. Okay, well, I think that's it for this one. Um, and the next topic is going to be system reliability. Yep. The next and last topic in this series. Yep, and that'll be a fun one that's certainly more relevant and, and is certainly important to uh uh, all of our operators out there, all of our you know combustion turbine owners and such, for how to uh, keep your turbine up and running and reliable. Given, uh, well, it, one, they're aging, and two, they're uh, being asked to do a lot of things they weren't originally designed for. So, mm-hmm. lots to cover mm-hmm. there. All right, great. I'm excited. Thank you again, and uh, can't wait to get on the next one. Very good. Yeah, me too. It was a very good discussion. Thank you, Michelle. Yep. Thanks, everyone, for joining me for today's episode of Interactive Control, where we discussed load flexibility in part three of a four-part series on advanced controls. Don't forget to tune in next month to learn about system reliability. We at GE Vernova hope you found this discussion helpful. If so, please subscribe to our podcast and tell all your control friends about us. You may also want to check out our website at nexuscontrols.com. Lastly, don't forget the title of this podcast is Interactive Control for a Reason. If you have a topic you'd like us to cover that we haven't yet, or if you'd be interested in being a guest on our show, please send me, Michelle Rosinski, a message over LinkedIn or email, and we'll do our best to cover it in a future episode. Thanks again, and bye for now.